Produced by Curious Arts. Hello and welcome to A Curious Conversation. My name is Alex Meller and this is the third show in the run-up to the season of debate. You can find us on uh, Instagram at curious underscore arts, at Twitter at artscurious, and on uh, the internet at www.curious.arts. And yeah, like I say, my name is Alex Meller and we'll be having a conversation with a couple of interesting people in and around Sheffield. And the person I've got today is Mr. Gary Roberts. Welcome to you, sir. Hi. So, you're a first-time author living in Sheffield, and uh, your book's about quite a unique perspective. But before we get into that, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Um, where are you from? Where did you grow up? What school did you go to? Yeah, I'm originally from Sheffield. I grew up in Broomhill and High Green, and I went to Notre Dame High School and in Fulwood. Just to give me an idea, because the first two people that I've had on have been my age. And look, I'm not going to make any assumptions, <laughs> but you're not really my age. You've got, was it two kids? Two kids, yeah. And it, again, I don't want to ask how old you are, but when did you go to school? Give me, give me a context for that time. Uh, high school was 89 to 94. Okay, fair enough then. So, and, and you grew up in and around Sheffield. So comparing that with the sort of the, the modern day, what's it like? like how, how have you seen the city change? Oh, yeah, it's definitely hugely changed originally. It was, as it probably was for centuries, an industrial, um, hard city. Mm-hmm. And now it's um, obviously with the advent of the 80s and 90s, it's changed and it's become lots more broader in its perspective of business and enterprise, I'd say. Mm-hmm. And um, like I say, you've got quite a, an interesting book and the title is 7.62, yeah? Yeah. And for those of you that, well, for those of us that don't know, string of numbers, what does it mean? Uh, 7.62 refers to the caliber of AK-47s, which is the preferred weapons of our enemy in Iraq. And that should give you some idea of what we're going to be talking about today. So if you want to click off, now's your chance. Um, And going into this sort of thing, and we're going to be talking about Iraq and some of the other heavy stuff, there is one um, serious allegation that has been... Uh, level against you, Gary, and um, it's that you're a blade supporter. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Wrong side of the city. Mm. Ah, well. <laughs> dear, 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 you can't all be saints, I suppose. Yeah, well, uh, that's, that's the right side of the city at the oh, moment, isn't yeah, it? <laughs> yeah, only because you're in the Premier League. <laughs> so, tell me a little bit about this book. Yeah, so this book's a memoir. It um, centres around my time in Iraq, um, although it does touch on other places I've been. Um, I first went to Iraq in 2003, and I left Iraq 2009. And you say you left about you were a soldier at first, yeah? I was, yeah. British Army. And then what? And then I became a private military contractor. Wow. Okay, and straight away, um, I've got a lot of questions. When you say a private military contractor, how is that different from a soldier? Um, basically, you're working for a private company, registered taxpaying company in the United Kingdom, and you go out and do soldier-type tasks, military tasks, defense tasks... Um, for a private company under a contract. So why is the army, why, why are we asking, uh, you say, private military contractors to do these things? Why aren't we asking the army to do these things? Um, the, the deployment in Iraq, Afghanistan and other places is just too wide, broad and large for the British army to, to conduct everything. You see, that, that's quite interesting because mm. to me, the army is all, com- all, all encompassing. It handles everything that we need to do in that sort of regard. So when you say... It's a broad scope. 
I'm troubling. I'm having trouble wrapping my head around that. Can you can you can you explain that to me? Like when you say a broad scope, like what is it that you're doing that the army? Well, so what is it that you were doing that the army can't? Yeah. So basically, the, Iraq's a huge country, millions of people. You know, thousands of square miles, mm. and basically the British Army and the American Army can't cover everything and all the jobs they need to do to facilitate their mission. So what they do is they outsource certain tasks to private companies to be fill, fulfilled that role. That. So on what sort of tasks specifically, say? Uh, it's mainly defence tasks, so anything from escorting convoys to um, protecting engineers or people involved in the reconstruction mm. of Iraq, and yeah. even to journalists and the press, they would need protection to go into Iraq, and, and uh, private military companies can supply that. And this isn't the job of the army, looking after engineers and... Uh, you said you said journalists and sort of high profile. Not people. necessarily, um, and that, that, that you know, as a state entity, they are entitled to outsource, as most state entities do. So that that, that seems very odd to me, because again, my it seems very odd yeah. to you because, and it seems very odd to the, the you know most people because mm. we're still emotionally attached to um, the block centric industrial armies of the Cold War. Right. And, okay. You know, since since um, the end of the Cold War, mm. things have changed. The army's a lot smaller. Budgets are smaller. Not just our military, but around the world, most NATO and coalition forces are a lot smaller, a lot more streamlined, um, a lot more professional. So they can't fulfil everything that's required of them on a mission, especially in missions such as Iraq, where things didn't go fully to plan. Well, and we're going to get onto that, yeah. I have no doubt. So let's rewind it a little bit and talk a little bit about the book. Um, you say it's about your your memoirs as a soldier, mm. so as, as a child and then a soldier, and, and then as a private military contractor, but why, why is it about that? Like, what makes this topic worth talking about? Well, I think as we sit here in 2020, we're at the first stage in time where we can actually reflect on the war of terror, war against terror, um, more so with a bit of distance. And mm. I think, especially with the allegations and everything that came out of the Iraq war and other places, um, we're in a, a good place to look at it with a bit more hindsight than we ever did before. Mm. And for someone who's uh, been through this, perhaps had a bit more personal touch than, well, I'd say 99% of us will. Definitely. How does that feel for you? going back and looking at these things and perhaps having people that haven't been there going over these events with a fine-tooth comb, how does that make you feel, if you don't mind me asking? It makes me feel that, they, that it, they've got an impossible task. They can, you can never know <laughs> until you do it. Mm. Just the same with anything. You know, I don't blame them for not knowing. Um, but you know, they should understand that, that you can't know unless you do it yourself. And speaking of the book and that sort of thing, Tell me a bit more about what went into this. Like, how was it for you, as a, not just as a first, first-time author, but writing about your personal experiences? Well, I found it quite therapeutic, quite mm. cathartic. Um, it was a nice way to draw a line under that part of my life. And I always look, look at it as that there'll be a bit of legacy, you know, for my kids, grandkids, mm. great-grandkids maybe one day. That, fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that they, they'll have something to look back and a bit of family history there oh. for them. So it's, it's also personal signs apart from giving it to the public and letting them know about something they might not necessarily know about otherwise. Mm. And this is all not even uh, talking to the fact that you're, you're, you're a first-time author. Right. You know, and that comes with its own host of struggles. So did, just, did you just pick up a pen one day and start I writing did, it down? I just or? started writing a couple of stories in isolation. 
mm-hmm. no intention of writing a lot of a book, the whole book. Um, and actually, when I did first start writing the first bits, I had a lot of the stories that I ended up writing about hadn't even happened by then. So it was an ongoing process. Oh, I see. So, yeah. so you started writing this what, while you were still, while yeah, you were, yeah. were you a contractor? Well, I was a contractor, yeah. Okay. So paint me the picture. Talk to me through the timeline. So you're, you're a child at Notre Dame, did you say? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. And then, so, and talk to me this, because, oh, like, did you just think one day, I want to be a soldier, this is the life for me? Or uh, tell me about that journey a little it bit. It feels like it felt like it, but like it, you know, it just happened mm. and I wanted to be a soldier. But actually, when I look back and I started to analyze it when I was writing yeah. the book, you know, a lot of things were imprinted in my mind throughout my childhood, which steered me that way. Such um, as? Yeah, such as just the news. The background mm. to my childhood was, you know, um, Northern Ireland, Beirut. And the troubles and that Yes, sort of things mm. like that. And I always found an interest. I didn't realize I was particularly interested in it, but I always stopped to watch that kind of thing. And then the first Gulf War, 91. Was, was it the British Embassy with, in, in Iran? Was that around that time? Or am I, am I getting that right? No, that was 1980. Ah. So I was like right. two years old. I, then. Right. I say, that's <laughs> Not even as well. Yeah. I, I was born in 1997. So <laughs> I, I'm saying my youth with these ones. Yeah. But, so, and... and and that was quite impactful on your sort of formative years. I think so. Say, Looking back, I think so. I obviously didn't realise it at the time. I just thought mm. it was, you know, action clad on TV. Mm. Um, TV wasn't accessible. And the news wasn't ex- as accessible as it was now with the internet mm. and everything. So, yeah, really got, gained my interest at that time. And that um, sort of led you to joining the army then? Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that. Like, like, like what was your first night in basic like? Uh, hmm. It's probably not what people expect. Your first that day. Was, cause we've, we've had shows, we've had, was it like the um, SAS training camp, like the Paras, mm. they've done all of theirs, and, they, and that gives you, I mean, it, it, is that what it's like? Well, they're only showing you the action bits, and yes, it is all that and more. Um, there's a lot more to it, you know. Mm. You know, your first lesson in the army is probably how to make your bed, for example, you know. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, how like to iron your kit. So <laughs> um, there's a lot of that. But then, yeah, it does go into the more interesting things, which is what they'll show you on the TV. This might be a bit of a weird question, but I want to ask you, when you, when you joined the army, mm. did you ever think about, like, what would happen when you got into a battle? Like, you know, you... You, you think about it constantly, because that's what they're training you to do. And what's that like in terms of the, the, the mental pressure? Uh, there's no mental pressure. Really? No. It feels like they're training you to do something so that when in the day of the race, you do it. Hmm. So what, what goes into that? Like, again, you talk about basic training where they're telling you to, like, they're telling you to make your bed, to, to, to fold your clothes, to iron your clothes, to, like, you know, to look at your uniform. Teaching How does you, that help you? I think what they're showing you and what they're teaching you is that you can actually do more than you think you can. You can be more tired than you think you can. You can be colder than you think you can. Wow. And so that mental resilience, although it's not palpably instructed to you, mm. it sort of builds up in your own mind and your own self-confidence. And the way I see it, like the army doesn't give you discipline or doesn't give anyone discipline. It gives you self-discipline, which I think is a big difference. So you're learning about yourself as much as you're learning a new trade or skill or set of skills. And those set of skills will help you later in life. So, right, because you always fall back on your own training mm. anyway. And and so when you're in the army, so you you in the uh, the infantry side? Yeah, light infantry, the rifles, third battalion. And what, what sort of again? What sort of things did you have to do during during that time? Again, help me paint paint, paint me the picture of this because again, um, it's the difference between civilian and military life. 
Help me paint the picture. Help yeah. me to understand this. Uh, well, you're living a whole new life. It's not like a job where you can go home at 5 p.m. Mm. So, yeah, a lot of field, field training, a lot of skills, equipment, um, everything from weapons to map reading to compass work to mm. um, signaling skills, radio work, um, all the things you'd be required to do or may be required to do um, come the time of operations. And, and what was it like? Again, you, you say you, you, can't, you can't go home at 5 o'clock and you're stuck in a room with... X many other lads yeah. who can't also go home at five o'clock. What's that like? Well, <laughs> the Dami does a pretty good job of tiring you all out mm. during the day um, yeah. and during the night. Mm. It, it gets to a point where, at the crux of training, you you know there's no, you know, it all blends into one blur of exercise and training, and there's no nights or days, and you basically spend every waking hour doing something on the course, whether it's even just preparing your mm. locker or your room for the next day's inspection wow and another curveball for you just for now yeah can i see this could you you say looking back on your on, on your on on this on, on this journey that you've been on you know you, you, with hindsight and that sort of thing can you tell me a moment where you could you almost pinpoint in fact a moment where you stopped being a civilian and became a soldier not just in the, you know i'm not just i'm not just talking about just like a sign on the dotted line mm. congratulations here's your handshake you're, you're part of the army now yeah i've touched on this in the book a little bit mm. probably not i could probably not pinpoint an exact moment but what i will say is that you know i i, I finished training and i went straight to Belfast, which is where my unit was um and i realized that the, the baptism of fire isn't joining the army or even going to Belfast. it's it's leaving a platoon of 30 boys in training and joining a battalion of 500 fighting men mm. so that was the real baptism of fire if what, you know what i mean regardless what, of where they were or what their job they were doing at the time and what was that like and what what again so so you're going from 30 recruits raw recruits yeah. and you're joining uh say 500 fighting men yeah as you say what's the difference like then so you, that's the baptism by fire but what it's what just a huge cultural that? difference um mm. you're expected to know a lot more you're expected to think for yourself a lot more you're expected to have a bit more about your character you're not just dealing with 30 other boys your age mm. you know you've got sergeants who've been in 10 years even other privates or riflemen that have been in 10 years you know right up to 20 years sergeant majors right. 25 years plus and everything so you're in you're a mix of a whole plethora of different people, mm. different soldiers of all different stages of their career, or from different parts of the country, all with their own stories and their own different experiences of the army, which is what you didn't have when you were in training. Wow. And, and, and what was that like for you? Did you, did you find it hard to adjust, or was it, was it you know, because I've, I've, I've heard people say, like, oh, they, they, they snapped to it, and there's... Uh, the regimented lifestyle works really well for them. How was that for you? Yeah, it worked asking. really well for me as well, yeah. Um, there was a lot of adjustment, but mm. I relished it, and it felt all right for me. I see I see how it worked, and I understood it, I think. Wow. And I enjoyed the challenge. <laughs> wow, incredible. So, and, and after that, let's, let's go back to the sort of the timeline of thing. Mm. Joined the Army. How long were you in there for? Uh, ten years. Ten years. Went a decade in the Army. Yeah. And, Looking back on it now, do you do you think you've changed at all from that? Like, you know, if you hadn't gone into the army, do you think you could have, what what could have been? Yeah, you must. I don't think anyone could say they didn't change them. So yeah, you must, but you can never second guess the few. Who knows what would have happened? Fair enough. And 
then you decided to leave the army and do something else. Mm. And, that, and the do something else was you joined a PMC, a, yeah. a contracting group. What was that like? Tell me about the, the shift from going from the army to think, I mean, was it a sort of job that you could go home at five, at five o'clock at? Or? No, not at all. Um, I left the army on a Friday afternoon and I was in Baghdad Monday morning. So you, so you left the army. I left the army on a Friday afternoon, and I was in Baghdad Monday morning with a brand new, new job. Yeah. Okay, so straight away, it's a bit of a turnaround. I've not had jobs. I've, I've, not, <laughs> I've not walked out of one job and got another job like that. So, yeah. So what was? What, tell me more about that. That's well, the army does give you leeway when you come yeah. to your signing off period. So I had been through all the interviews mm. and you know the, the, the courses and stuff. So yeah, it was all set up ready for when I left. So you walk out of one and straight into another. Yeah. How, how did that feel? To be honest, moving to a PMC sort of felt like moving to just shifting to another unit within the army. I didn't feel like I'd stopped soldiering. It felt like a natural continuation or evolution of my career. Why is that? You say that you hadn't... Yeah, because I'd moved from one group of soldiers to another group of soldiers. They just happened to be privately hired contractors. Okay. Tell me a little bit more about it. Because, again, you, you read all these things. You hear mm. these things on the news, and it's, you know... It, private military contractors operating uh, without restrictions. I can do whatever I want. I've, I've got a gun and I'm running around in Afghanistan. Like, mm. but, but you're just telling me it's just, an, it's just another bunch of soldiers, same discipline, same... Yeah, because the discipline so, is inherently cultural and societal within soldiering. So, And that's the reason they employ ex-British Army or ex-American Army guys, because oh, so they want the culture that comes with it and the professional that comes with them and the high standard of training that comes with them. So in, so in PMCs and that sort of thing, it's, it's just... You, the, 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 the hiring from ex-soldiers and ex-military? Pretty much. They should be, yeah. Wow. See, again, that's something that you don't hear about in, in the news. And that's one thing I mm. want to ask you about. You know, again, uh, you, you see depictions of uh, the military in media, uh, video games, all that sort of stuff. Like, uh, how does that, I guess I want to say, is how, how does that make you feel when you see these depictions of uh, the military and private military contractors? It depends how good a job they did. All right, go on. Do you have so yeah, um, you know, you can, you know. Actually, there's been a, pro- a lot of good movies lately mm. in the last few years. Do show that, and they're starting as we, like I said, as we sit here in 2020, we're at that point where we can actually reflect on the war on terror. Yeah, um, from a certain distance. So mm. um, there are certain Hollywood movies that, ref- uh, looking at the first days of Afghanistan, for example. Yeah, um, the first troops that were in there after 9-11, so, yeah. which I find very interesting. And it's even even if you were there at that time and you might not know about these other certain missions. Yeah. So it's very historical, actually, to learn about these things. Do you wish there's anything that people, when it comes to the wider public, civilians, whatever you want to call them, is there, any, is there anything that you wish they more people knew? In what way? Just anything, like uh, about the army, about... Uh, military contractors about Afghanistan anything well is anything that you wish that they more people knew about I don't know what you mean there I mean like, you know <laughs> sorry well, no, no 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 it's absolutely fair enough it, it, about say maybe like the lifestyle or, or what actually went into it because again some people just might not be informed you know we've got 24-7 revolving news and it's very easy for that just to become background noise for people just to be focused on what they've got so when I say is there anything that you wish people may know more want to know more about these things is there anything that you want people to i think um yeah with regards to iraq especially it'd be nice if people it'd be it'd be better if people knew the good that was done there you know um through pmcs and through the army and through 
general reconstruction. You know, there's large parts of Baghdad and Basra that, you know, didn't have electricity or sewage until the coalition was there to provide these things. And when you say the coalition, it's uh, UK, USA. Yeah, Australia. Um, actually, Britain and America were the only officially recognised occupi- occupiers of Iraq after okay. the war. Um, but yeah, Australia was there. I think there was a few other countries there as well, yeah. And this is where all things seem to tie back in. You say you've got all these different army groups in there and you've got private military contractors supporting right. them. Yeah. And, and you say, and that reconstruction, that's what you think people should know more about. Yeah, definitely. Um, there is a, in the news, yeah, they say if it bleeds, it leads. So mm. yeah, know, they'll, they'll only report the, the bad parts of the... It gets clicks, but... Yeah. That's something again. So... Tying that back in, you've left the army. Yeah. Like you say, walk out of one job, straight into another, and you're in Baghdad a couple of days later. Mm-hmm. What sort of stuff were you doing when you were a PMC? Um, the first contract I was on was um, we were supporting an engineering company mm. who were providing power to parts of Baghdad, working in the power station. So we were escorting them around Baghdad. Very glamorous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, we were doing protective services um, um, originally. And what was that like? I mean, what was the army? You know, was it, was it digging foxholes? Was it like standing guard outside places and then and going to this? Not like, at all. It was all vehicle based. Um, we'd get from you know the roads in Baghdad. That was you know two thousand uh, mid two thousands. So mm. uh, you only have to look at the statistics. And Baghdad was on fire at that yeah. time. Yeah, Not it was great. it was crazy. So yeah, just one you know a ten minute mission. From point A to point B within Baghdad, you know, it was a day's planning. Yeah. And often those plans didn't survive contact with the enemy. And so I guess my next question is, is the, 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 the strain that that would, that would put on someone. So you're, 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 you're going through Baghdad, you're, you're escorting convoys, did you say? And that could be of... Yeah, I did a lot of convoys, yeah, and, and, all over the country, actually, yeah. And, and what sort of things would, would you run into? You know, say uh, average... Well, it's a Thursday today, average Thursday in Baghdad. Like, what sort of might you run into? Yeah, you could go anything from one ambush to 15 ambushes, separate 15. enemy contacts. Yes, you know, it's not unheard of at all. And you say, it's, and so it's, and it's just yourself, or have you got anyone else with you? In these yeah, we've got, you know, we've generally got four uh, four vehicles of um, PMCs. Then we've obviously got the convoy itself that we mm. would pr- be protecting. Um, often, if we had sensitive cargo such as ammunition or weapons we'd have um military support in the form of maybe an apache or two supporting the convoy I suppose that'd have one of those things thundering over it's nice yeah but not every day no not all the time and as i say uh, the military was quite stretched they can't provide everything all the time which is where we came in it's, it's that to me sounds very odd that there's I, I, yeah, yeah, I do apologize if I'm seeing getting yeah, hung fine, up on these yeah, things, yeah. but it's the idea that the army can't do something or doesn't have the equipment to, or, or, or the resources to do a certain thing. That, mm. that to me sounds, again, but you say it's the block yeah. tactics and the change yeah, from yeah, that. Yeah, it's just we're, we're still emotionally connected to the Cold War and how, you know, a state army provided every single thing within that, from food to drainage to mm. combat operations. And uh, it's just not like that anymore. Again, that, that that seems very odd to me, but I, I get yeah. If you've been there, you you you've <laughs> seen it firsthand. But again, so tell me more about what what it was like working as uh, as a PMC, and sort of, and how it was different to being in the army. You know, it's like so you, you you're running from point A to point B. I mean, do you get to pick the jobs that you go on, or no? You, know? you generally 
given them through an ops manager. Yeah, mm. but the, I'd say the main difference between the army and PMCs is that one in PMCs you're constantly operational, so right. you'll have some leave, you'll go to work, and you'll be straight on operations, live operations in the hot zones. Whereas in the army, obviously, you've got time on exercise, you've got time doing this and that, and then you might come up to a deployment once every year, or once every two years, or even longer, depending on the, the era. See, that to me sounds like it would, it you know, you've got people say, I'm going to join the army, you know, and we're going to go fight the good fight and that sort of thing. And you get stuck behind a desk for three years. Right. You know, Some that, people do, yeah. And I guess that would be the thing that feels very stop start in a sense. It, you know, it feels like that could, that could quite throw a person. Yeah. Yeah. I felt quite, not frustrated, but I, I wanted to be on operations as much as possible at that time in my life. I mean, that to me sounds like you know somebody might somebody might say you know that's I don't say looking for trouble but you know you're in these places is what what would you say if someone said that was you know you're just looking for trouble? Oh, I was just at a, a stage and a time in my life where I was at an age where I wanted to test myself. I wanted okay. to be live. I didn't want to you know it's like I always say it's like playing for England. You don't want to chose for to play for England and then end up sitting on the bench. You want to be on the field. Very fair. And. And, and so one thing as well, I get one guess is like so, going from an army to a, to a corporation. Was it, was it corporate? Did you have a manager? Did you have a, you know, a guy in a suit came? We need to hit this many quotas. <laughs> you see, again, it's it, it's a disconnect. Like I'm, I'm struggling to uh, yeah. grasp the full context the, of this. The context was a lot more narrowly focused in the PMCs. Right. Um, your mission was, you know, you'll take this mm. cargo or this person or this group of people from point A to point B and you know do it however you can do it you know the army has a lot more to think about it has other missions to think about it has hearts and minds to think mm. about it has you know the whole the ho- there's a narrow mission but then there's a whole army mission and there's a whole geopolitics that surrounds being in iraq in the first place mm. whereas um contractors literally stick to their contract and they fulfill their contract can i ask you what was it like when you uh, when you're working as a contractor seeing I mean, did you ever see, I don't, it might have been a bit of a weird thing, but did you ever see your old army unit while you were a contractor? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. What was yeah, that like? Yeah. Did, you, did you see anyone you recognised? Yeah, yeah. I'd, um, I remember meeting uh, a young lad called Tommy Garden um, for coffees one day. It turned out we just um, spoke to each other on the phone and it turned out we were just over the fence from each other. Yeah, so me and a mate went round, we sat down with what, him. What was that like? It was great. All his, all his mates from the platoon came and sat with us while asking us questions, you know, about that, about that, yeah. Um, what the job's like, how'd you get it, what's the pay, <laughs> <laughs> so things like that, yeah, um, unfortunately, Tom, Tom, Tommy had a, he, had a, he was very interested in it, he gave me his rank slide before he went, as if, you know, as a little, don't forget where you came from, mate, type oh. of thing, um, unfortunately, he was killed in Afghanistan in 2010. I'm sorry to hear that, but being given that rank slide, and sitting and having these people asking you questions, what was that like for you? Uh well, I won't go so far as to say. I won't go so far as to say I felt like a rock star or anything silly like that. But <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting because I I had that same interest, you know, just a few years prior. I was, you know, it's a very even within the army, the PMCs were still uh, talked about in hushed hushed whispers. You know mm. what I mean? And who knows what and who has an in and who's got a mate somewhere? Do you know what I mean? Mm. And a lot of word of mouth. So. Um, within the army, what was the reception? What was the what was the perce- what was the perception? Sorry, 
about private military contractors whilst yeah. in the army. I don't think the higher up ranks particularly liked um, good trained soldiers going away after they spent so many years. It feels gaining. as if bosses are losing talent. Yeah, definitely. Wow. But um, you know, the army will never compete with the corporations for wages and stuff like that. Um, the the younger levels of the army, um, the lower levels, you know, the guys in the platoons and the mm. companies and the battalions, they were they, you know, they're all for it and very supportive because they know come one day they might be hitting us up for, <laughs> for an in. Wow. Oh, wow. Full of bloody chair half the time. <laughs> um, let me ask you this. If you, you, you're closer to, you, you mentioned uh, this, uh, this lad, this corporal, sorry, what was his name again? Tommy Gadden. Tommy Gadden. You're a bit closer to, to death and to danger than quite possibly anybody else in the first world in, in England, say, you know, quite frankly, the closest I come to that sort of danger is crossing the road every morning. Mm. What's it like living that close to things? You know, if you're on the base and just outside the fence, you know, that there's somebody out there, you know, with, with a weapon looking to hurt you. It's probably different to all people. For me, mm. for me at that time, I didn't mind it at all. I, okay. I can no, honestly... No, 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 again, that's, that's, yeah. that's incredibly interesting. How did you not mind? Um, you know, to me, I'd be quite frankly, I'd be sweating bullets because out there. it was normal life. That was my normal life, and it was nothing extraordinary to me. Um, me and a lot of guys, I'll tell you, you know, it got to a point where we just sleep through mortar attacks because <laughs> we need our sleep for the next day. I can't sleep through a car backfire. <laughs> yeah. Wow. 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 Yeah. And it's because it's normal. So that's in all. That and, case, and the value of normal just changes when you go go through different experiences in life. In that case, was coming back to the UK was that the hard stuff? Very much so, yeah. If you don't mind me asking, yeah. what did you find difficult? Uh, in general, just um, a lack of... I think I think at some points the Iraq war got boring in the media. People what? forgot about it. You know, maybe it just didn't sell papers or bring headlines. You know, you'd get off the airplane. You know, you might have been in an enemy contact 24 hours within the last 24 hours and you pick up a paper and it's about the celebrities and stuff. And, wow. you know, um, even, you know, your loved ones at home... You know, you don't tell them what you've been doing too much. You don't worry uh, people. No, no, not at all. Um, but then that brings its own challenges because they think it's fine. And it may not be fine. Uh, with, with that in mind, um, I'm going to ask you again, if there's anything that you think that you'd want people to know. Well, these. I wouldn't want people in general to worry, not people that I know. Um, I mm. think, you know, it'd be nice if... It, Maybe some more aware. Yeah, just a general awareness, particularly of PMCs, because no one's really aware of PMCs. You know, there's barely a recorded death toll. People don't even know know so, what they so are or who they do, so, so, what they do. So why is that death toll important then? Um, because they died in the same war that any soldiers died in. Mm. But um, they were working for a company, so they don't get the Union Jack draped coffins or the big send-offs. That they and yet they're in. down on the ground, running the, in the same dangers... Yeah, in the same scenarios, in the same, the same dangerous, same environment as everyone else. Yeah. And again, this might be blindingly obvious to yourself, but but why is that just so important then? I think just from a point of view of history and a point of view of support for veterans, people should be aware that this is you know you'll never fully understand it, but people should be aware or could be aware or more aware. Um, you can learn about it. You can buy books about it but you would never <laughs> you know until unless you really dig into it you probably won't know about it in general about that aspect of warfare wow well 
Thank you very much. You've given me quite a lot to think <laughs> You're on welcome. there. Um, and speaking of your book, um, 7.62, um, do you want a second to just give a quick chat about it or maybe even read a passage of it? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Fantastic. So if you want to um, grab your book. So uh, do you have a passage in mind? Yeah, so this is a little story um, about the time, about my time in the early days of when I was working as a contractor in Baghdad. Yeah, so, please. On the BSD contract, I have enemy contacts. The first, which takes place on my first rotation on route predators, is small arms fire that we drive straight through. The vehicles are riddled and need to be, and need to disappear to the mechanic shop. Later on Route Sonics, it's an IED. Just a drive-through, the panel on the front vehicle takes a hit, but the armour isn't compromised and we're all fine. Chris, the lad I met in London, is driving. During the third, con third a client gets a smack in the face. Before a mission, we brief the engineers carefully on what to do if we get into a situation. If something goes down and we have to move, I tell them, I'm going to grab you, I'm going to bond you into the vehicle. Got it? They nod. What else can they do? We're at a power station in Baghdad. When we come under fire, mortars. Instantly, I grab the back of the client's jacket and shove him with all my strength through the open door of the truck onto the back seat. He falls flat on his face. Now time to get his hands up to brace his fall. Within seconds, the second client follows suit and then I'm in the vehicle and we're out there. Fras turns to check the clients in the back. You okay? The clients nod unconvincingly. They're white-faced, shaken, but not injured beyond a grazed cheek. We're not going to apologize for manhandling them. It's our job. The PSD work is a real eye-opener for me in professionalism. You have to really be a fuck-up to get kicked out of the army. Here it's different. The first firing I see comes after someone gets caught drinking. This is armor group's most important contract, worth millions, and they can't afford mistakes, so it's a dry contract. No booze. It's not that they think we'll all be nightmares if we have a drink, but there's always that one who takes it too far, who can't handle it, whose judgment goes out the window, and they can't find they can't afford to have any loose cannons. I figure the guy caught on the booze will get a warning, but he's straight out of there. Read that sentence, sorry, just read that sentence again, because you didn't like yeah. I figure the guy on the booze would get a warning, but he's straight out of there. It's a shame, because he's a good bloke, can handle his drink, but I guess they can't fuck around. The next colleague to get given the boot, though, now that's far and away the right thing. Fraz is ex-army and ex-police. As my team leader, he seems a good bloke, on the ball, professional in training and professional out on tasks. But then he screws it all up by getting involved with an Iraqi girl. Not just any Iraqi girl, one who works for our clients. Their relationship is no secret. It's common knowledge among the guys and their local Iraqis. Fraz even gets to know her brother. I don't think it's in our contract that we can't fraternize with locals, but it's common sense to me to keep your business and pleasure separate. And we don't piss them, and don't we piss off the locals enough without using their girls? Fraz says he's had girlfriends back home, but nothing long-term. He once told me that the problem is they just don't get the job we do. I had to disagree, as there are many guys that have to spend long amounts of time away from their families in order to give them a better life in all sorts of industries. One day, Chris, the lad I met at the interview, and I were sh shout shooting on the range. Fraz, seemed Fraz stood behind us on the phone with his phone out, recording an answer machine message, pretending to be pretending to be in an enemy contact while answering the phone. Chris and I rolled our eyes at each other and just carried on firing. No wonder he couldn't keep a bed pulling shit like that. Pretending to be in some big time action hero, I thought. What if his mom or someone rang up to and heard that message? 
they'd be worried shitless. One evening, bored of sitting in my room, I decided to drop in on the lads and see what they, if they wanted to hang out. By this point, my team consists of Fraz, the team leader, Chris and John. I try Fraz first. Chris opens the door inside. I see Fraz sitting on his bed, head in his hands, breathing hard. John is standing anxiously over him. Fraz looks up and sees him. His eyes are bloodshot. They shot her, Gary, he says. They fucking shot her. I piece together the story from Fraz and the other lads. That afternoon, she had taken a taxi from work, as was her habit. She had been dropped off in the usual spot. There, a man, a local, was waiting for her. He put four pistol rounds into her chest. How did you find out, ask? Her brother rang me. Is she alive? Yes, she's in hospital. It's bad. She's fucked. I leave John and Chris to it with Fraz. I'm not interested in this shit. An hour later, I come back to check on him. I'm appalled to see the state Fraz is in. One of the managers has been called and, had, and has had to confiscate Fraz's weapons. We keep them in our rooms ready to stand by in case of a camp attack. And a medic has a, had to administer a sedative to calm him down. Still, he's talking rubbish, looking at a map and working out a route for, to rescue her. You're in, aren't you, Gary? It's a statement, not a question. In on what, I say, with a tone of accessibility. I know where the hospital is. I'm busting her out, going to bring her to a decent hospital in the green zone. What's the point of that, is my response. And anyway, how do you think you'll get her through the checkpoints? And what about the medical care she'll need during the transit? You're fucking crazy, mate. You need to pull yourself together. I roll my eyes. Fuck this. Chris agrees to sit with Fraz that night and make sure he doesn't leave the room. We catch eyes on my exit and shake our hands in unison. The next morning, we get word that our team is to report to the Central Army Group office in the green zone. Fraz has calmed down now, but he's told he's not allowed his weapons back. We drive to the green zone. Chris, John and I sit in the snooker room drinking tea while Fraz is in, the bo in with the bosses. What do you think, I ask? He's fucked up. A warning, maybe. But Chris makes the correct prediction. Chris has switched on to the business side of the, interest of the industry much quicker than me. And whilst I still had my army head on, he grasped the consequences of Fraz Fraz's actions. Chris explains that the boss's decisions have to be made in a commercial and business context and not with a military mindset anymore. Sure enough, Fraz comes back and tells us dejectedly that he's on the next plane out. Job and girlfriend gone in the blink of, a note, blink of an eye. Mental note, listen to Chris. As much as I see why Fraz fell apart, and I'm sorry that his girl's injured, I don't think the bosses can allow losing control to the point of having your weapons taken and are given medication. I hit to do a job. We're not here to be emotive. There's no room for a loose cannon on your team. People like that can get you killed. A couple of years later, Chris would bump into Fraz at Amman Airport in Jordan. He'll be there with his new team, a new company. Chris will say, all right. Fraz will nod, but then blank him. Well, he'll hardly want to, his new colleagues to know that about him now, will he? Thank you very much. And that was no uh, 7.62, and it was, uh, sorry, who was it? Sorry, Steel City Press. Yeah. Wow. So, why this particular passage? What uh, about its significant? I think it shows the human side a little bit, the people who are working out there, you know. Not everyone's, not, we're not all machines, you know. Was Fighting a war constantly. There's a lot of um, interesting stories that go alongside and parallel a lot of our was that hard for you to write when it came down when it came time to put pen to paper? I had to think about it. The story in itself tells itself. Um, I had to think about whether to include it. I had to think about you know 
people's names in there. Mm. But when I say it was hard to write, did you, did, did it come down to something like, did, was, was, there, was there a decision behind it? Do I leave it in, do I, do I take it out? You know, wholesale, not just with names. Yeah, um, I actually did speak to Chris mm. and discussed it with him. And he said, yeah, leave it in. I was leaning that way anyway, and, and, and I did. Did you, how, was that the sort of the, 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 the tone of the whole book? It was every time you get into one of these new passages about your experiences there, and it was, hang on a second, this is, this, this goes beyond your normal heavy stuff. Because you're not, you're not, yeah. these aren't fictionalized events, these are. Yeah, um, you know, I'm probably not going to write very many memoirs, mm. and this is probably going to be the only one, so I thought, you know, I'm going to do it properly, I'm going to. You know, keep it raw, keep it as it was, keep the truth in there. I'm not going to blank out faces or change names particularly. Um, so, yeah, I wanted it to be real. So one day in generations to come, people know they're reading the truth and the facts. Mm. One last question before we go. Yeah. Was it worth it, writing the whole book? Definitely, yeah. Did it help you in any way? Um, it's nice to know that my story's out there a little bit and... You know, people can can look it up and see see these stories. I hate to think of all of the centuries of soldiering. There's going to be millions and millions of stories that have been lost just as people pass away and things. And it's nice that some of them are preserved. Okay. Well, thank you very much. This has been a curious conversation with Gary Roberts, author of Seven Point Six Two. My name was Alex Meller, and um, you can find us on Twitter at curious uh, sorry curious arts on Instagram at curious underscore arts and at www.curious.arts. Again, this has been uh, Alex Meller with Gary Roberts, author of 7.62. And uh, just before we go, where can they find the book? Uh, you can check out the Facebook page, 7.62, and Amazon and Steel City Press website. Right then. Thank you for coming, and thank you for sharing your story with thank me. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Lovely. Right then. Let's kill that, that reading sign. Yeah, no, it's, it's a